Chen Julie Wong, your new book is Beautiful Country. Thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. We're so excited to see you today. Thank you so much for having me, Miwa. I'm so excited to be here. I promise you, I will not ask you what your name means. <laughs> I'm very <laughs> grateful. <laughs> And and I'll reciprocate that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So in 1994, you're seven years old. You come to the United States with your mom and your dad, who are both professors in mainland China, and you end up having a very difficult, different experience here. Would you set up Beautiful Country for listeners, please? Sure. My book, Beautiful Country, opens at the marker for the before and after of my life and specifically my childhood. It opens with me on a plane for the very first time in my life with my mother next to me, who is immensely airsick, and I feel very lost and confused. And that was the day, July 29th, 1984, that we left Beijing airport to arrive at JFK because my father had left China two years prior. So I had not seen him since I was five and I'm seven in 1994 and we are going to Brooklyn. I had very little information back then in China. We all had very little information about America. So I was told that it was either going to be that there was gold all over the streets or that everyone was starving and homeless. And there was no in between in those portrayals. So I had zero idea what to expect. And I was a fairly normal child in China to the extent that, you know, you, know, you can define normal I was fairly well off. I was surrounded by grandparents and cousins and aunts and uncles and was just one of many Chinese kids who just fit in and never wanted for clothing or food. And of course, when we get off the plane, I realize that not only are we much poorer in America, we are also undocumented. And my dad in particular repeatedly admonishes us not to attract any notice to pivot and run the minute we see a cop, which I then internalize as pivot and run the minute I see anyone in uniform because I didn't really know what a cop looked like. My mother and I didn't speak English. We worked in sweatshops and sushi factories. The book is a very close look at our years in that status. And what I had hoped for the book is to put the readers in the shoes of that lived childhood experiences. Because even though there are some things that were singularly unique to me in terms of events, I think there are a lot of elements of childhood that are actually very universal. And I also want to give listeners a little bit of context. If educated by Tara Westover or When I Was Puerto Rican by Esmeralda Santiago or The Glass Castle by Jeanette Walls or Persepolis by Marjane Satrapi, if any of those books pinged for you the way they did for me as a reader, you absolutely, absolutely need a copy of Beautiful Country. It is a coming of age story. Yes, it is a story of trauma and resilience, but it is ultimately a very hopeful book. And we're not going to give away the ending, obviously. This is going to air shortly after the book pubs. But what I will say is if any of those extraordinary coming of age stories spoke to you as a reader, you need beautiful country sooner rather than later. I know what the title means, but I'm going to ask you to translate the title because you also have a stylistic choice in this book that I think is pretty great. And my question leads into that. Sure. So beautiful country is a literal and direct translation of the words in Chinese for America, which is 美国, beautiful and country. 
So you made a choice that I really appreciate as a reader where none of the Chinese words are italicized in your memoir. And I will say it doesn't interrupt the story. You do not need to know Chinese or any kind of romanization of Chinese. You just don't need to know Chinese. You simply need to understand what it's like to be a kid when your parents are going through a lot, you're going through a lot. You don't really have family or community. So when did you make the decision that we were just going to treat Chinese like any other word in the text? Very early on, part of what I wanted to do with this book, and thank you, Miwa, for putting me in such esteemed company. Part of what I wanted to add to the childhood memoir canon was the experience of bilingualism and specifically learning a brand new language when you don't know a word of it. So I had hoped that from the beginning of the book, there would be more pinyin and Chinese peppered in. And as I become more fluent in English, they seep out. And there are times when there are translations for the pinyin. There are times when there are not, because I trust and respect my readers to be able to infer what is going on. And so I hope that it will show readers a little bit of what it's like to learn English as a young kid, but also maybe help teach them a little bit of Chinese along the way. That would be fun. One of the other things I did in working with Chinese was to add spaces for each pinyin for each character. Typically in English, you would put, for instance, Beijing as Beijing, two separate characters with a space between them if you were observing how characters are treated. In English, that pinyin is squished together to one word. And I very much wanted to treat Chinese in this book just like English, because when you're bilingual and in your head, there are Chinese words peppered in with English words and they are of equal import. So that was a discussion that I had with my editor as to whether we wanted to conform to typical style or break from it. And there are words like Beijing, which are so typical and recognized that I kept in typical form and the rest, I put a space in between simply to honor how it would be treated in Chinese. I do also want to give listeners a little more context. You ultimately went to college at Swarthmore in Pennsylvania. You're a graduate of Yale Law School. Can we talk about how this book literally started for you typing on your cell phone on your subway commute? I love this story. Yeah, absolutely. So I became a lawyer about nine years ago, going on 10 years, and I had always felt pulled to the law. I actually discovered biographies of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Thurgood Marshall in my public library while I was in the process of learning English from these books and decided from there that I was going to be a lawyer and actually shockingly loved practicing law, which some of you may know is quite rare. So when I took it upon myself to start writing this book, I was also working 60 to 80 hours a week at my national law firm making partner. And that was, I don't know, a special kind of delusion that I thought that I could do that because I had very little time and a lawyer spends her day in front of a computer typing. And the last thing I wanted to do when I came home was sit in front of a computer typing. But I had pockets of time in my day where I was commuting to my office where I didn't have consistent reception. So I couldn't be on client calls. I couldn't be handling client emails. And so I established a rule for myself. I said, if you're going to write this book ever, it's going to have to be in these pockets of time. So as long as I was standing on the platform waiting for a subway or on the train itself, I told myself I had to write in my notes app on my iPhone. And I also had an additional rule, which was I could not use the delete button because I am a crazy over editor. I think everything that comes out of me is 
incredibly stupid. Uh, as you can imagine, it takes a long time for a draft to come out fully formed. That allowed me to both tap into that kind of raw emotional state that I needed to be in to write a story that's personal and also channel the kind of efficiency and stream of consciousness that I necessarily had to take on for this book to ever see the light of day. I, I never thought that I could finish writing a full book, but here I am. When did this book start to really happen for you? When did you decide, okay, this is it. I've been walking around with this story for a really long time. So there were two distinct moments. The first happened sometime toward the end of 2016. I became a naturalized citizen in May 2016, which was six months before the election. And when I went into that courtroom where we were all naturalized, there was a video of President Obama greeting everyone in that room as a fellow American. And when those words came out of the mouth of the president of the United States, something turned upside down in me because I don't think I ever allowed myself to recognize how badly I had needed and wanted to be called American and how insistently the world has refused to ascribe that term to me, even though I had stepped foot on this country about 22 years prior. After that moment, everything in life felt a little different, and especially in the midst of the political discourse that charged through the nation for the months after. I mean, the discourse wasn't new. It was just raised a level that I don't think this country has seen before. And for the first time, I was watching the debates and thinking not, oh, my God, my past history, my status is so shameful. I have to continue hiding it and not talking about it. Now I am choosing not to talk about it because there are millions of people out there who still cannot talk about it. And I am profoundly privileged and therefore tasked with the responsibility of sharing my story because that secret was no longer mine to keep. So that was the moment when I really decided, yes, absolutely. I need to put the story down on paper. But at that point I had not talked about those years. I had not even let myself really think about those years because my parents had told me it was so shameful and bad that we had ever lived in undocumented status. So I went into therapy and that was its own earth shattering experience of wondering if I was over buying at the supermarket every day because I had been hungry as a kid and never wanted to be hungry again. You know, all of these things that therapy makes you think about. And then I started writing the book on the subway. I started with the happy memories, for instance, eating pizza and not knowing what cheese was for the first time or trying to Tamagotchi in the gutters of Manhattan. But the hard memories were harder for me to channel. And so at one point I took a full year off and I just said to myself, this is not going to happen. I can't do it. I, I failed. I failed everybody and especially myself and my parents. And it was at the end of a long bout of I have failed. I'm not doing this. In October 2019, after my wedding, we were on the plane to our honeymoon when I thought, oh, I haven't touched this thing in a year, but I still feel like it's burning inside mm -hmm. me. Like I have to finish this. So I gave myself a deadline from October to December 31st, 2019. I said, if I didn't finish it, if I didn't finish a full draft by December 31st, and I was just not going to think about it and just let myself off the hook. And at that point, I had probably half the book written. I took out my phone on the plane and just started writing. And I just kept writing it. I think I had let it bottle up for so long that the story just completely flowed out of me. And I finished the first draft on December 30th. How do you reconstruct your childhood? 
At the beginning, it was a lot of looking back on some of the limited photos we had because we didn't have the resources to take that many photos. Looking at the diary that I meticulously kept because I was very inspired by Harriet the Spy and wanted to document every mundane detail in hopes that it would solve some giant mystery, which never came, alas. It helped me reconstruct and revisit I think of it as a separate child, like that was my child self. And I felt myself to be sitting with her as she wrote that diary. And I was transported back to that memory of when she was writing these words down. Like, why was she documenting what kind of ice cream her classmate ate after school? There must have been a reason for that. And then kind of accompanying her from memory to memory, both the joys of getting a pet cat for the first time and some of the harder moments. And it involved a lot of crying, but I think it also was central to, I think, what we do in therapy, which is reparenting ourselves, allowing for the safety of that child self to come to life and feel for the first time the emotions that were not safe to feel back in that moment. And to be the adult self there saying, it's okay, you can stare this in the face now. So it was module by module. And in my notes app, this book started as a bullet list of just discrete memories that I had. And then I put it in order. And when I wrote it on the subway, I would write things out of order, depending on what I felt called to revisit, which scene I felt called to revisit at the time. You're working off your notes. You're working off your memories. Did you interview your parents at all while you were working on the draft or did that come later? I did. There were Moments where I wasn't sure of specific locations or whether something mm -hmm. happened the way I remembered. And they really don't enjoy talking about those years at all. They would be like, why are you asking? And I was like, I, I just want to know from my own curiosity. But when I actually interviewed my father was for the prologue. When I had finished the entire draft, I felt that my father was not fully fleshed as many other characters in the book are. And my goal with this book was to bring nuance to every person, even the mean teachers. And I felt that something was missing from my father, but I didn't have access to it because I just didn't understand him. So I sat him down and in a rare instance of luck, he agreed to be recorded, audio recorded, and he shared his earliest memories. What happened to him in his childhood of being persecuted in the cultural revolution in very vivid details, because I think I get my knack for storytelling from him. And that was the last piece. And that really could not have happened without me interviewing my parents, because I felt like there was a puzzle piece in my story that I just didn't have yet. And being informed by my father's traumas at actually around the same age that I was going through my first traumas at age seven helped me revisit certain scenes later where I was with my father and interacting with him, but I didn't know how to have his perspective show through. And I think that the telling lesson that I have received from that experience is that our childhood traumas have a much larger hold over our adult selves, regardless of what you went through and who you are now, than we ever give them credit for. I think there's a lot of truth in saying that our parents did the best they could with what they had, and they didn't necessarily have all of the resources or the tools, regardless of immigration status or citizenship or anything else. I just think generationally, hopefully we are evolving as a society and a culture when it comes to how we talk about these things. And when we talk about them, Absolutely. it's clear that your parents are struggling throughout this book, not just with the fact that they are undocumented, but there's a lack of status. They've gone from being professors in China. Your dad takes a job as a porter in 
in a hospital of some kind. Then he's working in a laundry. Then he ends up in a law office. Your mom has the worst jobs. I mean, sweatshops, sushi factory, both of which you're brought along with right. for those jobs. And then she's cutting hair. And then finally she said, I've got to go to school. And somehow your mom puts herself through school, is raising you, keeping an eye on your dad. And really she's the one who says, hey, this is not working for any of us. We can't continue like this. Do you remember what that moment was like and realizing that your mom was just saying, hey, we can't, because you really, really held your mom in super high esteem. Yeah, I yeah, absolutely remember. And I think my reaction to it was similar to someone who had Stockholm syndrome, which was what you want to change things again. I've just now gotten used to living in an undocumented status and being going to school hungry every day. If we change again, I don't know how much worse it can be. The pivotal change in my life, I've been getting on that plane and all of a sudden the entire world is upside down. I was so terrified. My mother was godlike as I think mothers are to many children. I just wanted to support her and she seemed to grow increasingly desperate by the day and her conviction in turn grew that she had to and she had the power to get us out of it. And I didn't know what out of it meant. I didn't know what was going to happen to us, but I trusted my mother and did what I could to support her decision. And you'd also been her translator, like a lot of kids, first gen, second gen, who end up translating for their parents. And she sort of realized how much further along your English was and really started asking more questions of you. And that changes the dynamic of your relationship too, because you're very young when this happens. Absolutely. And I think this happens to a lot of immigrant children, especially when their parents arrive in a country where they don't have many resources, they don't have family or friends to rely on. She really sought me as a confidant. She used to call me her Xiaoyishan, little doctor, on-call therapist. Whenever she was worried about something, whenever she had a question, she would vent to me. And it gave me a sense of agency, actually. I mean, looking back, my mother feels extreme guilt over having done this. She still calls me to this day saying, oh my God, how could I have done that to you? I, you were only eight years old. And I understand that from an adult and mother's perspective. But for a child who felt like she had zero control over what was happening anywhere, it gave me the sense that I knew how to make good decisions. And I had a choice that could affect the circumstances. And yes, it put a great deal of pressure on me, but I think it gave me the understanding that I could mark my own path. And that ultimately, and my mother's faith that I could make things different for us is what gave me that continued hope and dream for a better life. When we were in China, she knew everything. I just did what I was told. I looked up to her in every situation. And when we came here, it necessarily became that I was a little bit parentified because of my better access to English and cultural resources and understanding of slang and mores. And that is a dynamic that's very hard to reverse even once you're out of that situation. And we struggle with that to this day where I have to tell myself, you're not responsible for your mother. She can live her life. She's an adult. But I also have found new empathy for her in those years. I mean, she was younger than I am now when we came here and she had a seven-year-old child. I can't imagine moving to somewhere where I don't speak the language with a child and just not understanding what was going on at all. So she absolutely did everything that was in her power to keep me protected. Unfortunately, it was just very limited. 
You're going back into your family's history, your own experience. You've created a narrative voice for yourself as a child. You have told your parents' story. You're telling your own story. How do you edit something like that? Editing, I would say, was much less painful than getting the first draft down, the generative process, as it always is for me, but particularly for these memories. The biggest problem I encountered with editing was because I had written these pieces piecemeal on the subway and not chronologically. And I had the intent of having the narrator's voice grow and mature with age, not just in terms of learning English, but also just speaking with a little bit more complicated syntax and understanding what was happening a little bit better. Is that one day I was writing from an eight-year-old's voice and the next day on my commute, I was writing from a 12-year-old's voice and then streamlining that and making that shift gradual was the most artistically taxing element for me. And then there was the careful use of Chinese or pulling out of Chinese, which was fairly easy. To get this draft down on paper, I'd tell myself, nobody was ever going to read this. This is never going to see the light of day. So don't need to worry about how my parents will feel and whether ice is going to still come after us. I'm just writing it down for myself. And that's why the phone helped. And then when I was editing and thinking, oh, now I'm going to send it to an agent and then maybe an editor, I was like, does this scene look okay? Is my father going to be okay with this scene being included? So I ended up doing more deletions in the editing process than anything else. You don't hold anything back, though. I mean, there are a couple of points where let's just say you could have behaved differently. And and you're a little and little kids, they're messy, they're weird, they're loud, they internalize things. Whereas an adult, you look back and go, "Oh, I'm so sorry, you decided to internalize that." But did anything surprise you while you were writing? How easy it was to see my parents' perspective, especially now that I'm in my 30s. I spent so much of my college years, especially hating my parents for what I went through. And I think when you're going through a difficult situation outside, possibly in work or in the rest of the world, it's very easy for you to then take it out on someone who's in your control, i.e. your children. And in some instances that did happen, but I was so able to see both sides of the situation that it really was not any of our fault. And that is a viewpoint that my parents still struggle with accepting. What was most surprising for me in, in writing this is how incredibly transformative just the act of writing this book has been for me. Even if I hadn't gone back and edited it, even if we hadn't submitted it to publishers, I felt upon finishing the draft on December 30th, 2019, that I was ready to close that chapter, that wound that I had just ignored and put in a corner and let it fester. I felt that it was starting to heal and that I myself was a different person for having simply allowed myself to go back and revisit those memories. Do you have a favorite moment from the book? As I mentioned earlier, I spent a lot of my fifth grade year looking in cracks and corners and alleys of New York City for a Tamagotchi, which was very popular back then. Many of my classmates had three or four and I had none, but it looked like so much fun. And one day my dad came home with a bag and said, you know, that chicken that you've been talking about, I have no idea what it is. Here it is. And I never could have fathomed for the life of me that we would be able to afford a toy like that because I had very limited toys and it was an electronic toy. I didn't even bother asking how much it was. I just figured it was out of the realm of possibility for me unless I found it in the gutter. And that was a moment, I mean, not just for getting the, the gift, but realizing, oh, for as 
walled off as my father seems and as distant as he is sometimes, he actually is listening to me. And he had been secretly saving money to get me that. In that moment, I was like, I really am loved. It certainly wasn't your only favorite moment from childhood, though. You write very fondly of your experience with the library. Yes. And with books, Harriet the Spy, Charlotte's Web, Babysitter's Club, Sweet Valley High Twins. You taught yourself to read, essentially, when you were left alone in a special needs classroom. And you used Berenstein Bears and some other picture books to teach yourself how to read. You're a lifelong reader, obviously. What are some of the books that informed your sort of vision for your own book or had the biggest influence as you were writing? I know why The Cage Bird Sings and Angela's Ashes. Those two books so beautifully evoke the experiences of childhood and the cultural surroundings for each respective author. And they read like novels, which was what I so much wanted my book to read like. And just to be able to experience a different perspective or a different part of the world so vividly was the gift I desperately wanted to give my readers. And that ultimately is what I believe the best literature does. Writing about poverty, writing about exclusion, writing about invisibility, writing about the trauma that your family went through in lots of different moments. How do you take care of yourself while you're reliving all of this? I'm still learning to do that, (laughs) especially as a lawyer and especially as someone who has recently turned to embracing civil rights work and immigration work and education rights work full time. It can feel like there's so much work to do and so little time. And any moment I spend sleeping is just time wasted. But I have to trust and the the process of writing this book allowed me to trust that even when I'm not actively working on it, for instance, that year where I was not writing, it's still percolating inside me. And it does form (laughs) into this piercing determination once I am able to turn to it. I am able to make it happen. So just telling myself that taking care of myself is just a way to ensure that I can keep going. And I'm a runner. I run long distances. And that really helps to think about how I would handle a marathon. And it's not to go you know, 20 miles an hour from the first, first mile and then just completely collapse. It's to plan it out and maintain a manageable speed. And it's not always easy. And I'm not good at it because I want to do everything immediately right now. And I'm a deeply impatient person, as my husband will tell anyone. But it is a daily reminder and mantra that I'm working on to slow down. Is that what you would tell writers who are starting out? I mean, you graduated with a JD, not an MFA, but you've written a really powerful, beautiful book. There is a lot of care and thought that went into the sentence structure and your word choice, and there's great stylistic decisions you made, but what's the advice you'd give someone in a similar position? Especially for a memoir, I remember professors and writers coming to visit campus telling us, don't write anything until you turn 30. And I was the 21-year-old being like, I already know everything. What are you, what are you talking about? You just think you know better because you're older. And I did. I tried this as novel in my senior year for my creative writing thesis. And it just didn't work because... I couldn't own up to the shame. Clearly, I was trying to fictionalize it for a reason. And the years that I spent not writing and not thinking about the book actually really informed me on how this book should be. And so I think no experience in the world in your life is wasted. Even if it seems like you're wasting time not writing, whatever you're experiencing that day is going to make you a better writer. But the corollary is sometimes you have to just sit down and write. 
So one rule I have for myself is don't think just right, which was the subway rule, right? Like I was just getting it all out there and the editing was for later. And that was the only way I would have ever had a first draft done. But I think when you get to that point, when you feel like this project is in you and it's ready to come out, you know, and if you need time to percolate, if you need time to go to therapy or do something fun, give yourself license to do that as well. Who have you been reading and recommending? I loved Minor Feelings. I read that last year and I read it again this year by Kathy Perkong. And it just changed my world. I always felt, and I think maybe a lot of Asian American or AAPI feel that I I felt like I didn't have standing to talk about race because we were quote unquote, the model minority, neither white nor black. We were in this in-between gray space and whatever I felt in terms of being treated stereotypically as an Asian American woman, I thought I was just being oversensitive, that I was imagining things, that I was making things about race when it wasn't. And to read the reflections of an Asian American woman who lived across the country, who was several years older than me, and see that she experienced the very same thing, gave me this validation and power to say, wait a minute, we absolutely do have standing to speak about this. And so speaking about race is still something that I'm learning to do and learning to be very frank about. And without that book, it it never would have happened. The other book that I love that I read recently is Detransition Baby by Tori Peters, because as I mentioned, the best literature opens your world up to a completely different perspective. And that's what Detransition Baby did for me, just just to be able to walk around in the blends or the body of a, a trans person and understand the myriad difficulties of just going about your day was completely eye-opening to me and made me aware of how very privileged I had been to feel very comfortable in my body. It seems like it took you a really long time to get comfortable in your own skin. And the book ends when you're 12, but still you are not fully settled. And, and there are a couple of hints that maybe there's some other stuff happening. So what's next for you? Do we get to see what happens to you after age 12? I would love to write a second memoir. However, if I were to go into immediately publishing that second memoir, I think my parents might have a heart attack because it's (laughs) been a lot for them to accept that this book is going out in the world. So right now I'm actually working on a novel about a woman of color in in a big law firm. I looked around and noticed that while there seems to be a huge appetite for legal dramas and stories set in the legal world, almost all of them are filtered through a white male lens. And I think there's a lot of nuance, a lot of insight that can come from the experiences that not just I have experienced, my friends experience and my colleagues. And so to write something a little bit more fun too, with maybe a bit of a thriller element and some more humor would be a good break before I turn back to the second book that will likely give my mother a heart attack. Asian parents do kind of have a very specific point of view. <laughs> don't air your dirty laundry, right? Why are you? It's, doing- <laughs> yeah, people don't need to know. Face matters. This idea that literal face, like what the outside thinks, really matters. I was going to say, my father actually told me when I first told him about this book. First of all, I don't want ice coming and beating down our door. And even though right. we're all legal, yep. it's still a fear. It's a fear in me too. It's not altogether rational. But he also said, I don't want to compromise the view of my intellectual integrity that I was undocumented. And I was like, what are you talking about? And and then he immediately went into face and how much face was lost and why do you even need to relive those years? And that is such a 
very Asian perspective, but I think particularly for my father, whose family became persecuted because of something his brother publicly wrote, it very much feels like my book is the continuation of the thing that my uncle wrote to get their family in trouble. And I feel a lot of pain for my father that he feels like this trauma is replicating. And, and my deepest hope is that when the book comes out and they see that nothing bad will happen, that he will be able to heal that part of himself that says, stay small, stay quiet, just to survive and be able to live a much fuller life. What do you want readers to know about Beautiful Country? I mean, obviously we're having a spoiler-free conversation because this is going to air really close to pub date. And this is the kind of book, I, I think there are going to be two responses. Either I read it in one sitting because I can't put it down, or I'm not going to finish it quickly because I don't want it to end. So what do you want readers to know about your story? I have actually heard that and I've been shocked that people have read it in one day. I don't know how that's possible. I mean, I can't, I can't. Thank you. That, that's the <laughs> biggest compliment you could pay me. I mean, I think the biggest message I would want to send readers is that I wrote this book as an experience. It's not a message. I have been asked a bunch of times, what message do you want this book to convey? And my answer is, it's not a message. It's like getting on a train. And as the train is moving with you inside it, looking out the window and seeing for the first time new facets of the landscape peppered with old facets that you're probably already familiar with. The biggest thing I've learned from speaking to readers is how universal the stories in this book are. I had no idea because I past believe some of these experiences to be singularly mine and therefore shameful. And the more conversations I have of this kind of, oh my God, I had the very same experience, even though I wasn't even an immigrant, I never moved, but I had this exact classroom experience or this experience in public. I think that goes to show how common and universal our humanity is and how unnecessarily secrets impose this feeling of shame on us. What I'm hoping too, is that it's going to help some people grow their empathy and move their empathy muscles a little more. And especially right now, it feels like we could all use a little bit more of that muscle. Okay, so you just mentioned that you wrote a novel, yeah. fictional version of this memoir as your senior thesis college. So who were some of the writers you were thinking about then? What's been shocking to me is that my style is time and again described as spare and restrained and simplistic. And the books that I loved were Victorian <laughs> literature. Very flowery, very descriptive. I got lost. You know that passage where Jane Eyre is wandering the forest for what feels like decades? I was the only person who loved that passage. I love stuff like that. And so I thought I was writing a Victorian novel that was set in modern day and then I send it to my workshop and my professor and people are like, oh my God, this is so spare. And I'm like, what? I'm, I'm Charles Dickens. No, I'm, I'm Charlotte Bronte. What are you talking about? So I don't know how it came out because Middlemark George Eliot is my absolute favorite book. I've read it a million and one times. And I guess I just can't write like them, unfortunately, these gifted Victorian authors and romantic authors, but they will forever be the suppliers of what I feel to be my best friends. Now I have to finish Middlemarch. You're the third person who's referenced Middlemarch recently. To me. Yeah. I have to finish it now. And I, I will totally own it. I keep putting it down. I mean, Adam Bede seems to be an easier ride to go through. I, I've heard that from a lot of people, that people just stop. It's just so long and life is short. So. And Middlemarch will always be there. 
you also recorded the audiobook. Can we talk about that experience for a second? Absolutely. It gave me so much insight and new appreciation to people who work in audio, both podcasts, audio editors, directors, producers, voice actors. You guys do not get paid nearly enough for what you do because I went in there with a purse full of snacks and seltzer because I eat all day long. And of course, then I get mic'd up and I'm like, oh no, I can't even take a sip of water without it being recorded. And to read verbatim in a smooth and eloquent way while you're mic'd up is incredibly stressful. And my director said, well, you're a courtroom lawyer. You can do this. No problem. You do it in court all the time. And I was like, yes, but when I'm standing up in court, I'm just speaking. I'm not tied to the exact words on the page. And so there were times when even with my own writing, I would just fill in a the or an ah, and we'd have to do it again. And I am so endlessly grateful to my team, producers, technicians, and directors who were very patient with me. And after the fact, I was like, I'm so sorry. We probably should have just gotten an actress to do this because I'm sure I, I took way more time than a pro would have needed. But I was shocked at how reading my words back so immediately transported me back to each memory. There were times when I started tearing up and we had to pause because I could see my parents as I was describing them. and. I just felt this welling of immense sadness and gratitude and forgiveness and love. And I just couldn't contain it. <laughs> there were other moments where I would read a sentence and be like, what idiot strung these words together? <laughs> Can we change this? But it made me experience my story and my book in a completely different way. And thank you all to everyone who works in audio production. I'm fortunate in that I am naturally just loud and opinionated. So write more books, please. Jian Chuli Wong, your new memoir is Beautiful Country. It is out now. Thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Thank you so much, Miwa and Barnes & Noble, for having me. It was a truly a delight. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. 